I've always had a fascination with large families. I've always wondered how do parents of cheerful kids who are generous get that done? How do they raise such exceptional human beings? Well, today's interview is my attempt to find out. Brett and Emily Wabker are parents of six children ages 10 to 1. Is that right? 10 to 1. Uh, both are lifelong recreational athletes, great swing dancers, and excellent parents. Before she decided to be with her kids full-time, Emily was a beloved high school teacher at a very demanding school, and she taught a class that a lot of schools don't even offer, but they really should. She taught many classes, including World War II and Holocaust, and she's had a variety of side hustles. Her husband, Brett Wabker, is an energy manager for the U.S. Army. He studied electrical engineering and computer engineering at Kansas State University. Um, if he had any spare time, he'd probably like to join us for this podcast. But this is real life. Um, he was going to be here, and instead he's upstairs taking care of the six kids. And that's just how things work. So today, Emily, and maybe Brett later, will be telling their story about how romance turned to marriage and how marriage turned into reality pretty fast. The fact is that both are very hardworking and creative and deeply committed people, and that helps. So I'm interviewing them because I want to know how people can raise amazing kids. So hey, Emily. <laughs> Hi, Tim. Well, tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, how old are all of your kids? So they are 10, 8, 6, 4, three and one. Okay. And uh, you got married when you were 25. I was 25. Brett was 27, almost 28. Okay. And that first kid came along like within the first year. Yep. Nine months after the wedding. <laughs> <laughs> that actually happened with my mom. I mean, she got married and she said she was so sensitive to her body. She could tell within two days that she was pregnant. She could tell. We had the opposite. Um, Brett actually knew several times before I did that we were pregnant. He knew first. He did. <laughs> How is that even possible? Isn't that hilarious? Well, so we have always practiced natural family planning even before we were engaged. Um, and so we both learn the methods together and we chart together. And so, and he's also just very observant and has an engineer's mind to like look at patterns in long term and mm. notice things. Versus, and a lot of women will say this, that we're just lucky if we can write something down that day, you know, and a lot of men can see this, these long-term things. And so he would just, a lot, looking back, it's like, yes, I should have noticed perhaps, but like when you're new and you've never been pregnant before, but so yeah, he, he knew before I did several times. Um, but side note, we also went into our marriage, um, with a lot of unknowns with our fertility, um, so that was kind of, it was like this weird mind game of we weren't even sure if we could have kids. So. Oh, interesting. Yeah. From we may not have any to we have six. Exactly. Well, and I guess I'm just going to say maybe in your defense, sometimes it's a lot easier to see what's going on with another person than it is to kind of really be able to tell what's going on with yourself. Mm -hmm. So he's looking at you and he's thinking she is behaving very differently then she was behaving, say, last week, last month, six months ago. Things are very different. So maybe he could pick up on the fact that you're pregnant. I don't know. I'm just trying well, to dive into his reasoning. <laughs> you could tell me. Well, a lot of it's the NFP stuff. So I don't know how much you want to get into that and the TMI of bodily fluids and functions. Right. But when you're charting and it, and so I 
had it one way for a very long time and that was part of the problem and it was completely different on the honeymoon we, so we had a three-week honeymoon and by the end it was different and i never had to chart that before so it was like looking back it's like i should have recognized that oh, oh yeah. i've never had to write this on there that's how he knew so it's not like he was this brilliant brain scientist. i mean he is brilliant but it's like I also, because I went into it not knowing a clue of what was going to happen, I think I kind of completely pushed it aside and it was just living in the moment, which I do not usually do. But I was just completely living in the moment. And whereas he was just noticing something that most people would probably notice. Oh, that makes sense. He's looking at a chart like an engineer. Right. I was thinking he's looking at you like a brilliant psychologist, like <laughs> Freud, who could see into people's psyche. I mean, we'd have to ask him if he noticed any behavioral differences, but I'm pretty sure it was the chart just taking a 180. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, we're going to get into how you raise kids. But first, uh, can you tell us just what type of a kid you were? Before high school. Before high school, sure. Um, so I am very extroverted. Ex I call myself an extreme extrovert. But I, I, it always makes me wonder if my upbringing, ha how much that had to do with it. Because I feel like it's got to be both. But the reason I say that is because my dad was in the Air Force for 20 years. So we moved around every three or four years of my childhood. My younger brothers did not have the same experience. They moved like once or twice. Whereas I moved six or seven times. So... I would make friends and we would move a couple years later and the older you get the harder that is so the last time that I moved was in seventh grade um, and my parents always moved in between school years to make it easier and I'm grateful to this day that we'd never moved like in high school you know the older you get the harder that is um, but I think that is part of why I can make friends in most rooms I'm happy to talk to whoever and I think that's been very helpful but I think part of that's probably just the way I was made and part of it was maybe shaped a little bit from moving around so much. Gotcha. Maybe both genetics and environments because maybe some of your brothers wouldn't be quite so social. Maybe moving around would make some people pull into themselves. But take an extrovert and it's just going to make an extrovert work harder. Yeah. Okay. So you're an extreme extrovert. How did that play out in high school? Um, you know, I actually was very quiet in high school which no one believes what for some, <laughs> i know well for some reason you know you go to a bigger environment and really i was kind of quieter in school and middle school until i found my people because i was the weird like you come to a catholic grade school and all the kids have gone there since kindergarten and you come in middle school when they're all kind of like done with the same people but they still have their friends so they're hesitant to welcome new people and they're intrigued by them so you know, I had two years at the grade school before going to high school, so I was pretty reserved, except if I had made some good friends. So at home I was fine, but at school I was pretty just reserved. And the same was in high school until junior year. And I had this bizarre experience, and I gotta tell you, I hate that it happens around a guy. I really hate it, but it is a true story. So. I was reserved except for my core group of like five girls. Okay. I was totally myself with them, but at school I was super reserved. I was always a goody two-shoes. I studied really hard. I worked really hard. I'm a rule follower. I got straight A's. Like I did all the things the way you're supposed to do. Um, in junior year, um, there was this guy that I thought was cute and happened to have a class with him. And I was joking and being goofy like I usually am with my friends, but we were at school actually in Spanish class. 
And I remember joking with a friend of being goofy, and then I turned to him and was like, oh, sorry, I'll be quiet or something. And he said something like, no, I like it. And I'm sure he was being just kind because he was a really nice guy. But to me, I was like, what? And from then on, I was myself at school. And, you know, I'm like, I see it as a blessing. Yeah. But, like, it still annoys me that it was because of this guy that was cute. But it was still a blessing because from then on... I, I cared less about what people thought and I was more comfortable just it was this weird affirmation from somebody who didn't know me but saw me being myself so it was just like yeah. hey it's okay to do that and it affected me and then I was fine with it and much more confident in school and a, quite a bit louder at school he did you an amazing favor. He really did. I actually wrote him a note at the end of senior year. We had kind of a retreat. And I just, I was like, you probably have no clue what I'm talking about and probably don't remember this at all. But I wanted to thank you for being kind, you know, or something along those lines. Yeah, that's really powerful. That's really cool. Okay, so then you go off to college and now you're free. You're free to be yourself. You're an extreme extrovert and, and you've just been unleashed by this random guy. So, so <laughs> what are you like in college? So I joined a sorority. I was very skeptical. Very. I had a very bad attitude. I made fun of a lot of things. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll just go through it because none of my best friends went to the same college. So I, I was like, okay, fine. Make new friends, right? And so I went through recruitment and kind of just whatever. I don't care about this. Trying to, you know, downplay it. But then, so I joined, I was like, fine, I'll try it for a semester and see how I like it. And I loved it because I love being around people and it's basically a community, you know? And I even told Brett one time, I was like, I could totally be a sister, like, and live in a, in a community, in a convent, like, and get to volunteer and be part of a community. Like, I could fit in right there. Um, he's he's like, like, it's too late. Yeah, he's like, uh, we're dating <laughs> or engaged or something. And I was like, no, I'm just saying, like. If this doesn't work out, no, I'm just <laughs> but but yeah, I loved the sorority, and I was an officer in there for three years because it just the opportunity and it gets a bad rap. Like movies, totally because I I went in the complete skeptic and had a one eighty because it wasn't what I expected. It wasn't what the movies told me it was, and it was so refreshing because we focused on philanthropy, we focused on leadership skills. You know, it, it, so many good things came of it. Some of my best friends, some of my bridesmaids, and. But anyway, so that was a big part. I played um, club softball for a couple of years, played any intramural sport I could with the sorority or co-ed, met some of my best friends at St. Isidore's, um, the Catholic Student Center. So most of my time was either spent, you know, besides in class, of course, was at the sorority or at the student center. And just met so many great friends who influenced my faith even more. And I don't know, I remember going to like an all-campus party like the first couple weeks of school and I was bored because I didn't drink. I, I didn't drink till I was 21, which I know is rare. And I'm one of those people that takes certain challenges very seriously. And that was one just to prove people wrong. Gotcha. Like that was the part like of people well, are like, oh, you're going to drink. Like, they just assume you go to college. And so I took that as I took it as a challenge because I'm a dork. And I was like, well, that's the challenge. I mean, I'm going to prove people wrong. I don't need to drink to do whatever. And so for me, it was part challenge and part... I'm a control freak and I didn't know what it would do to me. Okay. Having never drank before. So it scared me to have this lack of control. Plus I knew that God calls us to take care of our bodies and not to get out of control. Right. Um, and so a lot, part of it was following church teaching. Part of it was trying to prove people wrong. And part of it was just fear. <laughs> but anyway, so I didn't go to all these parties. They just, I, it made me laugh at people being stupid. 
you know? And I'm like, I'm glad they're having fun, but they're making poor choices. So I'm not a fan. I was willing to DD for people, you know, to take care of them, but I didn't agree with what they were doing. So we made our own fun. I remember swing dancing with people and learning how to do it on this random rooftop that we had at this apartment complex. And I mean, I never slept. I went to bed at 4 p.m. all the time, or 4 a.m. all the time. And people, most people doing that are out partying or something. And I was just like, High energy. Yeah, and had FOMO. Like, I didn't want to miss out on anything. Oh, what is somebody up to? Oh, you know, somebody's doing something. I better be awake and be the last one to go to sleep. Right, and this is in the era before social media. So, you know, the only way you can know what's going on is you actually have to be there. Mm -hmm. And then it's not curated. You're seeing the real thing. It's true. Must have been fantastic. It was so much fun. I loved college. I loved high school, too. I was like, fifth year high school, let's go. And then (laughs) I went to college and I was like, even better. I'm totally staying here. And then had to leave. Well, I've taught a lot of high school and I've yet to meet the fifth year senior who was enjoying it. I know. So I'm glad you went out of college. It's probably better. It was better, for sure. But senior year of high school, I was wishing for it. But yeah, it was good to move on. (laughs) Okay. So then you met Brett. But before we get into meeting Brett, let's back up to Brett's childhood and maybe you could just relay a few things either from grade school or high school and his own college experience. Oh gosh, I'll try, but I wasn't there. Um, So he grew up on a farm. That was a big difference for us because even though I moved around, we were still in big cities. Um, He grew up on a farm. He had one sister and he had to work a lot on the farm and the way he tells it is his sister did not. (laughs) She was in the house quite a bit. Um, and so, and he didn't prefer it. Like now he's so grateful for that childhood and growing up on a farm, Mm. but it's not something he wants to go back to. Like you see a lot of farm kids that want to go back in and run the farm. Yes, you do. And we both love that we can go to his parents' farm and take the kids there, but he has no interest in going back. Um, and I think he... I mean, he says he enjoyed his childhood for the most part. I think he was a typical kid. He played some sports. He was in band and choir in high school, which most people that met him after college thought he was like a three-sport letterman because he's such a good athlete. But all of that came later. It's crazy because he only did, in high school, he only did choir and band. That's crazy. I never would have guessed that in a million years. Yeah, he was not athletic he was a little bit overweight and it wasn't till junior year of college that he joined the ultimate frisbee club team and that'll get you in shape real fast okay and so once he joined the club team he got in he lost tons of weight he got in super good shape took much better care of himself and um what transformation what what caused that i mean was that just like a something that was like a slow process or was there just like a come to Jesus moment or something? Uh, I think it was a couple things, but for the most part, he says that like the first two years of college, he was, you know, he lived in the all guys dorm the freshman year, maybe sophomore, I don't remember. And he, you know, all guys just sat around and played video games okay, all the time, you know? And I'm sure he enjoyed it, but then he reached a point where he was like, there's got to be something more, I think. (laughs) And, you know, you're not going to lose weight doing that. Right. And so I think he reached a point where he just saw the sloth of it. Okay. You know, and I'd have to ask him. I don't remember how he joined the team. I think it was friends from his floor. Either they were already on the team or they decided to do it together. I'm not sure, but yeah, we'd have to ask him. (laughs) Okay, okay. Because I didn't know until after that. I guess the whole story just blows my mind because it's kind of like he was a different person before the age of 21 because 
Since then, both of you, you're so athletic and uh, just amazing swing dancers. And I just, I just picture you both as these graceful, physical, athletic people. And here you're describing this chubby video game playing slop, you know. Which I didn't even witness. Yeah. You know, and actually he grew up doing 4-H too. That was oh, a huge okay. part of, okay. of, I didn't even heard of 4-H until college. I don't know. I didn't even know what it was. Um, but he, besides like showing cattle and baking and things like that, like their club would learn all those types of skills. Like he started learning how to dance from 4-H oh, when cool. he was a kid. Cool. So I think he, he learned some of that back then. And he did, like I said, he played some sports growing up, but nothing at the, nothing at a super competitive level. So it's just funny because I did grow up doing that. Yeah. I mean, all I did was play sports. I did a couple musicals throughout high school, but I played sports heavily for years. You're just one of those people who embraces all of life because before we started recording this, we just spent a lot of time talking about books, talking about Hamilton, uh, talking about other plays and movies and more books and more books and songs. And you're, you're just a person who just jumps into everything. I get excited about a lot of things, yes. Brett always asks like, oh, well, what's the latest? Like, what are you into this week? Because I get so excited and then he assumes it'll fade. And some things fade and some don't. But right. it's like I almost get obsessed about certain things and I just have to have all the knowledge about it right then. Now, in contrast, is, is his personality opposite of yours or the same as yours? Actually, a little bit of both. <laughs> so let me frame that. So I love setting the temperaments. I love studying personality types in general, but the temperaments would be the one I know the most and think about the most. And I appreciate because there's only four. You know, right, like I know right. you know the Myers Briggs yeah, 16 yeah, yeah. so well. 16, yeah. Right, but I don't know them as well as you do. But the temperaments I can handle because there's four. Anyway, that being said, he is mostly choleric. Okay. I, if I had to guess, I'd say like 70% choleric. Which that's kind of like the leader driven, focused, serious. Yes, yeah. Extroverted very logical uh-huh. you know the engineer in him makes total sense that he's he's a choleric uh and then i'm kind of 50 50 sanguine choleric right, right right um and it depends on the situation as a mom i find myself very choleric but needing more of my sanguine right but i think it's mainly just the whole managing eight people thing and the sanguine that's the easygoing relaxed hey where's the party yes Let's likes have some fun likes to perform or be the center of attention um you know, all the fun things, loves to do, pro- I mean, extroverted as well, loves to start new things, but doesn't always follow through, but the choleric does follow through, so that helps. Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting for us because in that sense, we're both pretty choleric. There's a lot of choleric between the two of us, which is hard having a melancholic child. Mm. <laughs> so there's that whole dynamic, which we could get into later, but yeah. in terms of our personalities, we don't. I mean, we've had conflicts in our marriage, but nothing huge, you know, just, but there's so much choleric that we both want to solve the problems and get to the point. But at the same time, I've always been passive aggressive and he's not. So that's been a learning curve for us. I've become less passive aggressive as I get older. What do you mean by passive aggressive? So I guess what I mean for myself is that I don't like to cause conflict so I'm not very direct with people. So I will okay. kind of hint at it or 
hold a grudge or something or act annoyed and hope that he will come to me to try to adjust the problem. <laughs> and like Rather I said, than being direct and saying, right. you know, hey, please stop leaving your shoes in the entryway. I'm tripping over them. That right. kind of thing. So instead, yes. force the other person to guess. Yes. Gotcha. Yeah. Assuming he can just read my mind at all times, which is clearly ridiculous. But like I said, as I've gotten older, I think I've gotten a little less passive aggressive. He Some should of be able to read your mind. He can figure out when you're pregnant. I know. You would think, right? Yeah. I mean, a lot of times I feel like I'm pretty predictable just because I don't hide my feelings very well. Because, I mean, I'm just... Not that I'm an overly emotional person, but it's that like extremist in me. I think it's yeah, like, yeah, you yeah. know if I'm mad and you know if I'm excited. Yeah. It's usually excited, but... Yeah. She's excited, but we don't know why. Right. She's mad, but we don't know why. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I don't hide it very well. Is he more on the extroverted or introverted side? So he's an extrovert, but like I always picture it like a spectrum. Yeah. So like I'm off the chart extroverted. Okay. And he would definitely be more in the middle. You know, like he's still an extrovert. Some people don't think he is, but it's really the logical of like, he's not shy or quiet. He's logical and not going to talk when you're talking. My family doesn't understand that <laughs> because we all talk at each other and we, and we think it's hilarious and we're loud and we all enjoy it. But when he first joined our family, you know, they weren't sure what to think of him because they're like, he doesn't say much. And then he's like, when would I say it? You know? And so people think he's more introverted than he is. Okay. But we have game nights all the time. He's not introverted at all. He's just more introverted than me, I guess. I see. So standing next to you, he looks introverted. Yeah. But standing yeah. next to an ordinary member of the society in America, he looks extroverted. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, how did the two of you meet, and how did you get married? And then I guess we'll get on to kids. Oh, gosh, how many details do you want? <laughs> um, I'll try my best to keep okay. it short, which I'm terrible at. Well, no, because, I mean, the story of a courtship could go on for days. That's exactly right. So I'll try. And different perspectives, too. So Yeah. Um, let's see. We first met. He actually dated a sorority sister of mine, and I didn't really know him when they were dating. And her and I weren't friends at the time either. Um, but we became really good friends. So it was just earlier. Okay. Um, but we actually kind of met at St. Isidore's. Uh, we were both in choir together. And I had met his sister first. So I actually became friends with her first. So I kind of knew who he was. But it wasn't until we were both in choir and seeing each other more on a regular basis that we actually started talking. And then our group of friends kind of started um, playing some sports together. But um, yeah, so we started kind of flirting at choir practices and stuff. And then uh, some friends of ours asked me to sing at their wedding, which was, I've sang it quite a few over the years now, but this was the very first time I'd been asked. And it was my junior year of college. And I was shocked and excited and nervous and everything. And it was so funny because we were hanging out at a friend's house playing cards. And as he left, I went out and asked him to go with me to the wedding as my date, which for me... I'm like, no, no, I don't ask people out. Like, that was something I had never done before. I didn't hardly date at all either. You know, I had guy friends, but I just, I, people didn't ask me. I was not going to ask people out on dates. My mind was telling me it's more like a group thing. Our whole group of friends was going. It was still in town. I was trying to play it down, even though I was asking someone to a wedding. So I was, it was so bizarre. But I was like, no, no, it's, I'm just going to downplay it. It's not a big deal. And he said yes, um, but then turns out we actually had our first like unofficial date before that wedding. So we were actually officially dating at the wedding. Our first date was not on purpose. We 
um, cantered at mass together on a Saturday night and went to dinner with the choir director and some friends who we sang with. And then we went back to the priest's apartment and played catchphrase. There were like four or five of us. And then after that, I was like 11 and we were all leaving and people parted ways and we kind of lingered in the parking lot like, oh, let's go do something together. And so he invited me to watch a movie, which Rounders, which until about a week ago, I could not have told you what was going on in that movie. I knew Matt Damon was in it and it was poker. I don't remember a thing because I was just like nervous and what is happening. So we watched that and then we talked for like three hours. Oh my gosh. And it's now like five or six in the morning. Right. Yeah. And we chatted and everything. And it was the whole, like, during the movie, like, put your hand out there hoping he reaches for it. And it took him, like, the entire movie to do so. And so he walked me out to my car at, like, 6, 6.30 in the morning. Wow. And I was giddy that entire day. Like, didn't go to sleep, I'm pretty sure. I don't know. You really I'm, don't need any sleep. It's helpful. I tell you <laughs> what. Especially with the six kids, it's been helpful. Um, maybe not wise. It might catch up with me later, but yeah. So yeah, that was our first date. It was December of 2004. And that's, that was our first date. (laughs) That's completely unique and totally awesome. I just have to say. (laughs) I enjoy the story. I do. And he, so he did come with me to the wedding, but we were kind of official at that point, it was like two weeks later after that, after nice. that first unofficial date. Um, but he brought me up a rose up in the choir loft when I was rehearsing because he knew I was nervous and it was my first wedding that I sang at and it was really sweet. And then we had a blast because we got to dance at the wedding and we actually throughout college took a swing dance class together, nice. which was amazing. And so, yeah, we had a lot of fun and we actually, our dating story, the short version is we actually dated four times. So we broke up three times. All the times were supposed to be for good. Um, and we broke up for different reasons. So it wasn't repeating the same mistakes, but it, it was timing. It was God's timing, which we always said God had a sense of humor with us in terms of our courtship and our marriage and our children. And so, I mean, it's helped us be more lighthearted and, and trusting of God, I think. <laughs> yeah, because I guess it would give you a big dose of humility. Because if you break up with somebody and then you get back together with them, you pretty much have to admit, hey, we were wrong the first time. And here you had to admit, we were wrong like three whole times. And so then that's good. It's good because, you know, I, I was wrong 12 times today. And I, I can't even keep track of all the times that I was wrong today. So I just think a lot of people could just stand and say, I can be wrong about this. It was interesting because, you know, I had friends, like when we decided to get back together the first time we got back together, so the second time we dated, I had a couple of my closest friends that were just, you know, concerned for me. And so they were very worried. They were not a fan of us getting back together. Right. And I I did try to explain parts of it, but I was like, look, you're not in this relationship, but I need you to trust me that I would not do this lightly. And we both took it very seriously, you know, because I was extremely hurt because that was really the first time was like the only real breakup I had dealt with. I mean, I kind of dated people, but nothing serious. So it was very new for me. And what's funny is we should have broken up that first time. But and it's funny because I even at the time was like, why am I so hurt by this? Because it wasn't working. It needed to end. Yeah. But I think it was because when we the very first time we started dating, I could see in him 
I could see he was somebody that I could marry. I saw it at the very beginning. At the beginning. I could see that he wasn't ready. I could see that even two of us together weren't quite ready. I didn't know that at day one. But the first, because the first time we dated was about five months long. And throughout that whole relationship, like I was learning. I'd never had an actual boyfriend and I learned from it so much, but I could tell that I could marry him. I didn't know if I would, but I could tell that he was somebody that I could marry and might want to. Um, I saw who he could be. I saw who could be around kids. And I just, I saw all these things. And it was interesting because where he was that year was not somebody I could marry. And so like, even though we learned about each other somewhat, we, it wasn't the relationship it could have been that first time. And you were in college. So how old were you this, at this point? I was 20. 20. So he was 22 and you were 20. Yes. And you could have seen marriage as a possibility, but of course you broke things off after five months. Yeah. He was graduating. Okay. So he was a fifth year senior, fifth year, sixth year senior. He had two extra years. So yeah, he was graduating. And so kind of this, the last few months he was just wanting to just enjoy his time and not be tied down. I don't think it was that he didn't like me or anything. I don't think he just wanted to be dating anybody. He just wanted to kind of enjoy the end of college and move on. And, you know, we, we did so much together and had so many mutual friends that it was kind of like, and he got a job. Um, so we went to K-State. He got a job at Fort Riley. Okay. So he was basically still in town after we graduated. Okay. You know, so he still played sports with us. He still was around. And since we had the same group of friends, I was seeing him quite a bit and he still sang at St. Isidore's. So it and wasn't... he didn't mind that. I did not. <laughs> but <laughs> I... Some people really do. They don't want to see that person. I struggled with it. It was awkward because he started dating someone else and we were still playing sports. So it was not easy for me at all. Um, But eventually we laugh about it because we usually got back together right around Christmas time. Okay. And we attribute that to, he didn't come home very much from college. He had, you know, he worked and everything, but he'd come home at Christmas, right? And be around his family. And he always said he felt his most true self and knowing his values and his priorities when he was with his family. And that is what always drew him back to me, I guess, because when we started talking, like obviously I saw him a lot, but when we actually started talking and talking, we were emailing back and forth again, kind of before social media and and texting and stuff too. We had these paragraphs long emails and we got to know each other at a very deep level. And part of that was even before we actually officially started dating, but a lot of it was once we agreed to again. And we just, we invested in each other and got to know each other even more than we did that first time. That first time was kind of surface level. We didn't know each other at all. Yeah. But because we knew each other, all of a sudden we were like, well, we already know each other, but now we need to dive deeper. And he always says that he really was drawn back to me because, you know, we'd come home for the holiday break and he would call me up and we would go meet and have these deep conversations and continue them via email. And we had a very serious conversation of, should we get back together? You know, Mm -hmm. it was not something we took lightly and we discussed what happened before. And, you know, and it was, I appreciated it. And that's what I had to explain to my friends is like, look, this is very different than the last time. And I can't remember now if it was the second or third time we got back together. I think it was the second, but we started praying together. Okay. And it was huge because it made a big difference. I just feel like this uh, write people long letters is definitely an art. And I think you really can get to know the other person well. Um, you just really sort of get inside the mind of the person writing 
I mean, they are just spilling their heart and soul to you, just spilling their guts, you know, yeah. and, and you're finding out their limitations and just all kinds of things. It's, it's very intimate writing mm-hmm. somebody a letter, you know, so that's just a beautiful way for the two of you to get to know each other. I can't believe you broke up after doing this. How did this possibly yeah, happen? I mean, this is your second time you're together, but then you break up. So why did you break up the second time? Gosh, I don't know if I remember. <clears throat> Something about being in different places. I don't know. Um, so a totally different reason. Like maybe geography. Yeah. There was something about... It wasn't geography till the third time. <laughs> it sounds so silly. So the second time, yeah, we lasted about four or five months. We'd always break up like in the spring semester. It was okay. so bizarre. But okay. I remember leaving for spring break because three friends and I went to California and went on the prices right. <laughs> and I just remember when I left feeling uneasy about it. And then when I came back being like, I think we're done. I'm not sure why. Okay. It was something about just being in different places again because he had already graduated. Okay. I was about to. and Well, ish. I was finishing up my time in Manhattan. And... I think he was in a very different place. He was still just wanting to have fun. And like, he'll say stuff like, I was being stupid. I'm like, I don't think so. I think you were finding your way. Uh And he, I don't think he, I still don't think he wanted the commitment. And so it was different reasons, but there was something else. I don't remember what it was, but there was something else. And we were just not on the same page, you know? And so... Yeah, we broke up and I moved back to Kansas City. And so we actually did have a disconnect, which was good. But I remember still being in contact with with him, which was weird because... You're cheating on your separation. I know. It wasn't good. <laughs> it was it was bizarre. And But like at that point, most of our friends had graduated and most came back to Kansas City. He had a few people left, but he started to then come back to Kansas City quite a bit. Because City on a Hill, as you know, right. that's when that was flourishing yeah and so he started coming back a ton to play sports and to hang out because there wasn't as much to do in manhattan for him okay and he he also said that he got into a point where he just was bored and drinking too much at times and just was ready for a change and so yeah and then that third time we got back together we had those conversations, you know, and that time we dated long distance because he was still in Manhattan. Oh, okay. And so that was very unique because I was student teaching that fall semester. That would have been 06. And so he was still in Manhattan, whole student teaching. I wasn't really talking to him much here and there. And then the spring semester, I moved out back together at Christmas or Thanksgiving. And we dated when I was just substitute teaching and enjoying life, moving out of my parents' house in with some friends and doing tons of Catholic challenge sports. And I remember, I think I might've initiated that breakup and it was, we actually, that time we dated, I know we were praying together. I know it was really good, but I remember thinking that we'd kind of plateaued and it wasn't progressing. I see. Cause I remember saying that cause I remember being in Waldo at a pizza place and on the phone with him, which is bizarre to me, all of it. But and because I don't remember like telling him my reservations and then trying to work through them. So to me, I look back and go, okay, so there was some immaturity there still mm-hmm. with the relationship, you know, like we still weren't ready. Cause you just sort of cut him off. I think so. Cause I don't, like I said, I don't remember 
like having conversations about, okay, where do you think we are? How are we doing? Because I think we were fine. Like nothing was wrong, but nothing was great. So then I just kind of thought, eh, okay, it yeah. wasn't meant to be or something. Yeah. But I don't remember having those conversations of like, do we need to discuss this? Because surely we would have, but I don't think we did. So each of these relationships was about five months. Yeah. Okay, and maybe running from roughly Christmas till spring. Mm-hmm. I think that last one was longer because I think it was over the summer. Okay. Um, but yeah, I just remember thinking that it just wasn't, I don't know. Well, fourth time is the charm. So then you got back together. Well, I cut him off after that third time. I said, you know what? We have to actually, because we would kind of text here and there. And I actually did date someone a couple times, you know, go out on a couple dates. Okay. But we like took a break and then he, um, would contact me again and I was like, I see where this is going and I let it go for a while and then I said, you know what, nope, I have to be done. And he was upset about it and I said, I need this, I have to have some separation. And then he gave me some space and then he asked me if we could meet and chat about some things and I was doing a musical at the time because my first year teaching, why not do a musical? Yeah, sure. And then I think back on my course, direct- I did. You were directing I was directing it? No, I was in it. Oh. Um, But of course I'd take on something else because I was single. I had time. And anyway, it was bizarre because we started talking again. And then he came to the musical. And then we went out afterwards. And after like the cast dinner, we chatted. And he basically said, look, I that separation was really hard on me. And I realized that I don't want to live my life without you in it. Oh, my goodness. And I, oh, what? And I was thrilled because we'd already been talking and and it was like you could see kind of where it was leading, but I was like, I'm going to guard my heart. Like, that's why I needed that situation to be cut off completely. But then when he, like, I needed him to, like, realize the severity of all this because I was like, I've been hurt too much. Like, I can't. And so, and he said, we're going to do this right. We're going to date properly because before we, it was all just hang out with our friends, yeah. kind of group date, kind of just hang out. Not Not well defined. Yeah, I mean, we were we were exclusive, but it wasn't like, we didn't really go out on dates. Like, we would just we played sports together, and we did yeah. things with friends, and so he was like, I want to do this right. Like, I want to take you out on dates. I want to spend quality time together. I want to have these conversations. And we'd had them over the years, but it was very, like, ambiguous. So, um, And maybe, maybe just kind of was being taken for granted at that point mm-hmm. a little bit. Right, and again, the timing, the immaturity, the unsure where both of us were separately, and, yeah. And so... After that, we he went back to Manhattan. We talked a bunch on the phone saying, what is this going to be? What's it going to look like? And he was like, I'm going to come back most weekends. He was already doing that, but I'm going to take you out on dates. I'm going to, you know, I'm serious about this. I want you in my life. And and so that was a major turning point because that's we didn't break up again after that. <laughs> um, but it was it was awesome. And that was long distance too that time. And we continued to pray together and... Um, we got engaged in September of 2008. He had already moved back to Kansas City. So we started back dating and he moved that kind of that next summer. And, you know, I helped him pick out the apartment and it was the apartment I moved into once we got married. But when he proposed, supposedly he had a couple plans that fell through. Like one time he was going to take me out on the way to his parents in like just an open country field and propose at sunlight at sunset. But we hit a deer on the way down there <laughs> in my car. <laughs> so that kind of put a damper on that evening. And so he told me after the fact that there were that was one and there was at least one other one where he had planned something that fell through somehow. 
And so then he finally, we were going to mass together at St. Joe. And after mass, I, we usually would kneel and pray separately. And I started to sit back down on the pew and he kind of yanked me back up to kneeling. And I was like, what is happening? And then he started talking and saying nice things and then said, would you go to mass with me for the rest of our lives? Wow. Jaw drop. I was like, yes. (laughs) You know, crying in tears and it's after mass and people are looking at us as he pulls the ring out of his pocket. Why is this mean guy making this girl cry? (laughs) Exactly. Why are they smiling and crying? And it was beautiful because then we went and we told both our parents and celebrated. It was beautiful. And I think I sang it face to face that night, this adoration thing at Ascension I was doing. And we went out after that with a ton of friends to celebrate. And it was an awesome day. Oh, that's great. That's great. So then you got married, and what month, what year, what month? We got married May 30th, 2009, which okay. is the Feast of St. Joan of Arc, which is nice. my confirmation saint, nice. which was a complete accident, God incidents, if you yeah. will. Yeah, well, Myra um, Spriggs wise, I'm pretty sure you're an ENFP, and uh, she is also an ENFP. So you should read up on Joan of Arc. You know, I love her. She's just right up your alley completely. So I'm interviewing Joe Barb today. Oh, great. So when did you first... No, just kidding. Um, okay, so then you got married, and then you were pregnant within a few days, is what you were saying? Um, I think it was within a week or so. Okay, see, and then life, life moves pretty fast, I think, at that point. It's because, you know, boom, nine and a half months later, or just however much, uh, then there's a baby. Yes, that definitely changes things. Yeah. It was a little shocking to us because we had kind of, if if we'd had our plan, which, you know, God laughs, but we were hoping for a year or two as just a married couple. But even at the time when we found out, we were grateful that he'd been able to move back to Kansas City the year we were engaged. So at least we had that year, just the two of us, and then yeah. obviously the year I was pregnant as well but like we if we had had our chance we would have wanted a year or two before we got pregnant but i mean still a blessing especially since we didn't know if we could have kids um yeah and it was it was honestly it was a very easy pregnancy except for the weird emergency surgery i had to have toward the beginning of it but if you take that because it wasn't pregnancy related but it affected the pregnancy so we, she's kind of our miracle baby because we i had this crazy my appendix was about to rupture, but my body built a wall around it. So when it did rupture, it protected me and the baby. So it was this crazy thing. And I it, I had surgery, major surgery, on the first day of school when I was supposed to be teaching. Oh, my god! And didn't come back till October. So See, this is so strange to me because I just always think of you and Brett as just being super fit. <laughs> it was humbling. I think... Part of it, not that God inflicts these things on us, but it was a great way for God to show me to slow down, I think, Mm -hmm. because before that, I mean, I would play when I was teaching my first year teaching, I'd play a different sport every day of the week after work, you know, and I just, that's how I'd much rather play a sport than work out. And so, and plus it was just fun. I'm social. I saw all my friends. It was a blast. Sure. That's what I would do if I were coordinated and agile, but that's why I work out. Oh, Yeah. I mean, and it was awesome and I loved it. But when I got pregnant, I did struggle with like, when do you slow down? How do you slow down? And I mean, now looking back, most people say, don't try something new now that you're pregnant because your body's not used to it. But you can continue a lot of things. However, a lot of my things were sports. So that does make a difference. Like 
Playing indoor soccer is a very physical game. That was something that I did not need to be doing past the first trimester. But you're 25. Doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> as no, fit as you are, it doesn't matter. I, I'm just thinking, you know, hey, you're 25. You still maybe sort of think you're indestructible. A little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and you're like, isn't it amazing that I'm three months pregnant and I can outscore all these other people? <laughs> I don't know if I thought that. But it was really fun. But actually it was bizarre because the weird pain that came with that appendix thing I was I was playing soccer still because I wasn't that far along um, and it's it's so many things it's a miracle that she survived well wow. because of all the stuff that was happening at the same time it's crazy it's pretty awesome well I I'm gonna hop ahead just a little bit and then hop back to one or two kids but you have six and you've packed six into ten years how do you stay sane why aren't you crazy? <laughs> How do you know I'm not? <laughs> um, it's definitely a day-to-day thing, but also, I mean, this is 10 years in the making of figuring this out because I've, I've had a lot of change in terms of, you know, I was teaching, didn't teach, had lots of different jobs trying to see what's a good fit for our family, partially for money, but partially just for my sanity and getting yeah. a change of pace. And so for me, it's been continuing to play sports. Brett and I both, we haven't played together on a sports team in a couple of years. Okay. Um, too many kids. <laughs> right. Well, somebody's got a babysit. Right. And so we actually play until the virus. Um, we both play on Monday nights soccer and for the most part have not had much overlap with our games and luckily have a really nice neighbor. If it, the kids are already in bed and we overlap, she'll just come over and sit over here. Nice. So it, it's worked out really well. And then other sports we've played on separate nights so that, you know, babysit. But I think we played together on some sports until the f- I was pregnant with number four. Okay. So we were still able to figure out a way to, but it was more when there was like one or two kids. You know, less for people to babysit. Um, But yeah, I think for both of us, those are really... Because we like to be active. We like to be fit. Neither one of us are as fit right now as we would like to be. But at least doing something like that a couple times a week um, helps our sanity and helps us kind of kill two birds with one stone. Yeah. Um, And then the other thing that I think we do together is... So we host a monthly game night with just some friends and that's huge. And we, we feel like we get to call dibs on hosting because we put all our kids in bed and then play and we just have the most kids like significantly more than most of our close friends. So we're like, if anyone's paying a babysitter, we'd prefer not to cause that's super expensive. Right. But most of our friends have people that can help them with that. Or sometimes only one of the spouses will come depending on who it is or some are single. Um, but it's kind of really worked out great. The people that regularly come, Either they have some help with their family that can babysit. So it sounds like you've got good social outlets and also good sporty outlets and good game outlets Mm -hmm. that kind of keep your sanity in place. Yeah. And then I would say prayer. I feel like I just have to because, you know, I can't, I can claim all these things that I'm doing, but I mean, I can't do any of this without God and with his grace and thank goodness for the grace, the graces that we receive from marriage because, you know, People can say that all you want, but I, I truly can see it, you know. And we used to um, we used to do marriage prep and give talks on marriage retreats. Um, that's a lot. That's why we don't do it now. Uh, but we figure that's a season we can get back into when the kids are a little older, you know, or some of them move yeah. out. But 
that was a beautiful like continuing education for our marriage you know because even small things like continue to flirt with each other you know that can very easily I can see I mean I see it seasonally with us like things just get forgotten because you're busy or you're exhausted but we have noticed and learned so much from these couples that have mentored us and the tools we've learned on these things how many things that like we have to have our marriage be priority and then the kids are next let's let's pause on that and just talk about that for a little bit how do you make the marriage a priority because I I feel like you hear these appalling statistics like married couples have 10 minutes of significant conversation per week like those type of stats that's so awful I don't even know if I believe it because it's it's like too much of a disaster movie to be believed almost but maybe it's true. 50% divorce rate, maybe it's true. Yeah, that yeah. I think you'd have to look more at who you're asking. You know what okay. I mean? Because I feel like Catholics that understand the sacrament, you know, or even Christians that understand the sacrament and what you're being called to, because I feel like these retreats that we used to do the marriage prep is all Catholic based, right? And it's for the good of the other, it's self-sacrifice, it's making Um, the other feel loved and lovable. And so if my goal, my mission is to love Brett the way Christ loves him and vice versa, like if that is our mission and our mission is to live that sacrament and our job as a married couple is to be the love of Christ to other people, to be the light, to show Christ's love to other people, then A, we have a big job, but B, like how fun is our job to like love on each other and that's our goal and our mission. But that also includes knowing each other well enough. And so like even with NFP and like I said before, him knowing my body, like he is called to um, to know me that well and to know my body. And so it's been a beautiful way, I think, for him to show that, to participate in our fertility journey together because you do think of the woman as doing most of the work in terms of the fertility yeah, journey. Yeah. Well, and, and the whole journey, because like she's the one yeah. who's pregnant. She's the one right. giving birth. Right. You know? And sometimes it feels a little lopsided, but I think we've learned over the years that like the key is communication, you know? Because every month, every day, when we he charts, I don't write it down. So he has to ask me daily oh, interesting. what we're going to write down. And it forces us to have those conversations always. Do we both feel called to abstain right now? Yes, we do. We don't think we could handle another kid. Or do we both feel open? Like, we always feel open to life. But do we feel open to another child in our family right now? What do you think about that? And then these conversations, you know, become really deep and beautiful and vulnerable. And it forces you to really get to know where the other is in the process and how, um, what struggles we're dealing with and how the other can help the other one along. You know, because I think Brett... (laughs) He jokes that like I'm the one who helped. He says save him, which I think is very extreme. But he he says things like, "Well, I was such a partier or whatever in college when we were dating before you really helped change me and make me a better person." And I think I I don't think I saved him or fixed him, but I think I helped him see who he knew he wanted to be. And that's great. I don't remember, I don't feel like I did something, but because we had this relationship he knew what he wanted. He knew he wanted a family. He knew he wanted this relationship. And so he feels like he was like the troublemaker of our relationship, the first part. And then I think, I feel like I'm the troublemaker now because (laughs) he's such a steady person. He's so mellow. He's so steady and so steadfast. 
And it allows me to be kind of kooky and weird and like all over the place to a point. Um, but also as a woman having to deal with, in my mind, a lot more change than he has. Right, um, right, right. Well, yeah, your body itself just goes through all these changes when you have these kids. Mm-hmm. So there's yeah. the physical, right? And then there's the mental of job situations, you know, which is not the same for every couple. But, you know, as a woman who went to college, got the, you know, work your whole life, get the degree, get a good job that you love, and then you start having kids and your priorities shift. But in my case, yes, my family was important, but my sanity relies on me having these outlets, you know, creative outlets, intellectual outlets, you know, some kind of balance. So for me, an ideal situation looks like part-time work outside the house, you know, and that's not everybody's reality. But that's what 10 years of working with kids, staying home with kids, working part-time with kids, like that's where I am right now. But he's had to be supportive through my ups and downs of figuring out who I am through this process. Right, because your life is just changing constantly. And his is too, but I mean, if this were a sine wave, yours just has a massive amplitude. And then his is just maybe more of like a, I don't know, a heartbeat. You know? Yes, it's, that's a good way to visualize it. Yeah, and I feel bad because sometimes I feel so selfish looking at all these struggles that I'm dealing with because I look to him to help me solve problems, which as a as a male and as an engineer, uh-huh. he's very much solution driven. Yeah, I bet. So if ever I'm wanting sympathy, that's not really his forte. But if I'm presenting these problems, like he's very much a solution driven person, but at the same time, he knows that some of it. You know, he can't fix everything. Right. And he's not meant to. That's not his job. Right. He can support and he can provide ideas. Um, so it's been an interesting dynamic between us because he's just seen these ups and downs for me. And a lot of it, I I have, you know, outside wounds I need to forgive, you know, that hurt our marriage that I need to move past and, and go with. And then also just taking it to prayer and saying, God, I'm not a good listener. Please help me listen to what you're wanting from me. Mm. Because the journey has been difficult but beautiful. That makes sense. Well, he's kind of the, the steady Eddie in mm-hmm. the situation. And just, gosh, things just would change so much for you. I could just, I'm just picturing somebody who has three kids, realizes she's pregnant. A little bit later, maybe she's six months pregnant possibly has tried to do an Etsy store or something else at the same point. Uh, and just your life is just filled with so much variety and change. And, you know, two months later, well, okay, now you're eight months pregnant. And then two months after that, oh, now there's another baby. And so just everything is just changing all the time. Where, you know, the guy, in his case, gets to go to work and then things might be relatively stable from nine to five during the day. And they're probably relatively stable some of the time when he's trying to sleep at two in the morning. You know, maybe not. I don't know. Just maybe a little bit more stability in mm-hmm. his day mm-hmm. versus your day, mm-hmm. which would be, I don't know, like getting stoned to death with popcorn balls or something. Oh, man. Some days I'm like, I, he gets home from work and I, I just feel like I've been physically and verbally abused all day long, <laughs> which sounds like a very extreme way to put it. But I think that is what's actually happening. But <laughs> But I mean, it's the kids, right? Like they're, they, they're young enough that they're very needy. That's just, you know, you're a baby, you're a toddler, right? Yeah. The babies are helpless. Right. And that's just where we are in life. And I've had a lot of older moms, you know, mentors and things say, you know, you're in the thick of it. It does get 
it there's never easy in parenting, but they do say, you know, because we still have toddlers and babies and all that, once you get out of like toddler baby stage, it gets really, really fun. Now, are there still hard and is the hard just different? Yes. But once you get out of the physical exhaustion of just trying to survive diapers and everything, right. it's really fun. And we've started to see that now that we have, you know, our eight and 10 year old can play so many games with us now. It's so fun and seeing their capabilities and who they take after and what strategies they use. And we've, I feel like we've been waiting for that for years. Like, are they old enough to play these games with us? No, not yet. What's well, like the stock that finally exploded. You're like, yeah. you're getting like the big payout, you know, yeah, I've invested yeah. in this Chipotle and Boom, now suddenly it shot through the roof type of a thing. Yeah, well, and I think we're in kind of a sweet spot with the older ones too because they're not quite to high school. They're not driving. They don't have phones. Like, they still love us and aren't total teenagers yet. Right. And once they, you know, have a job and go off to high school and everything, because I do feel like we don't really have them until 18. I feel like it's going to be closer to... 15 because then I remember barely being home because I'd go to school, I'd have a job, I'd go to sports practice, you know, and so just much more independent, but it's more like 15 or 16 than 18 when they potentially move out. And so it makes me sad because I'm like, I don't want to like sleep through these years, you know, because we're in a sweet spot of they don't, they care what their peers think, but they're not teenagers yet where they're gone and independent it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out because how do you know that some of them just won't be homebodies and be introverts and just want to read long, thick books with big words in them like you? That will be interesting because our oldest is like that. Okay. She's a melancholic. She's an introvert and she loves to read. And she does have friends, but she's not like our second who's a social butterfly and is friends with everyone. <laughs> right. Well, and then here's the other thing, too. There's any number of parents. I don't know, kids. Failure to launch that movie, Matthew McConaughey. I mean, you know, you might be saying, these kids are 33. They need to move out of the house. Oh, How no. do we get them out of the house? <laughs> no, I, Brett's made it pretty clear, and I completely support him, that they're moving out at 18. And we will support them, but not completely support them. Like, we really want them to our plan anyway. <laughs> I say this now, but our plan anyway is we want them to be fully functioning adults at 18 and the plan would be for them all to go to college for something just to broaden their horizons and get an education. Um, but who knows? But we want them to have the basic life skills like balancing a checkbook and browning some meat and things like that right. yeah, yeah, yeah. that they can function. But, you know, they will move out. They will get a job. They will get an apartment, you know, even if they're in town because that's what you do. And they do need to you, Are you teaching them all the chores like dishes, vacuum, laundry, how to mow the lawn, uh, babysit the younger siblings, just all those type of things? Yes. Yeah, we... <laughs> So it's fun because when they're toddlers, they want to help you so badly. And most moms will tell you, like, that's when you don't want them to help because it takes forever. And they break things. And they break things. But I don't know if we have that many breakable things anymore. Got rid of Everything's those. blasted. It's either broken or we don't get that stuff anymore. But, no, it's so funny when they're at that stage when all they want to do is help. Like, when they're from one to three, maybe even older, they just want to help with everything. And you're like, I love your enthusiasm, but I'd love to get this done right now. <laughs> but you let them anyway because it's great. And, you know, all of our kids at like two and three would unload the dishwasher and just hand us dishes. And it would take like 20 minutes, but who cares? Because they loved it and they wanted to help. And so, you know, it started young for us. They've, I mean, our all of our kids made their own school lunches starting in kindergarten, 
which was the opposite of me growing up. My mom made mine through high school, which cracks me up. And I appreciated it. And I never thought to tell her not to and do it myself, clearly. It didn't even occur to you. I don't think it did. It's so sad looking back. But yeah, our kids, and I don't know if that's typical for a lot of moms either. I think they probably wait till they're a little older, but I mean, I help them, but they, they're pretty self-sufficient. And so kindergarten on, they make their own lunches. And um, especially with a family this big, we expect them to help and we don't, they're not like our slaves or anything, but they're part of our family. You know, right, right, we right. are not their slaves, but they're going to, they're a contributing part of this family. They live in our house. So, and me as a cleric, I had, I like efficiency. <laughs> and so I'm all about finding the most efficient ways that we can do things that kind of help everybody. So, you know, we have a schedule for who makes lunch and we have a system for how laundry works and we have a rotation for this and for that and and that's come and developed over the years the more kids we've had but we kind of have a lot of systems in place that help it now is it still chaos and much more than I would prefer yes but I think once we get out of toddler baby things improve a bit on some of the like say clutter and things like that as well gotcha so you kind of read my mind i was going to ask about structures and schedules and chore charts and it sounds like you're just a big believer in systems yes and i have one of my best friends from college is a phlegmatic i, I talk about the temperaments a lot but De define phlegmatic for people sure so they are introverted and they are going to make a lot of their decisions based on relationships, which is the same as a sanguine. Sanguine's just the extrovert making people oh. people relationships. Okay. But it's very, very different than the choleric. And as Who a, makes decisions based on logic and symptoms or systems. Principles, Excuse me. Yep. Yeah. And so since as a mom, I'm very choleric because I'm just like... How can boom, I boom, use click, my boom. skills of efficiency and multitasking and organizing and admin? These are all like, I mean, I did a Holy Spirit charism test and leadership and admin were all these top charisms for me. And, oh, cool. And so then I have this friend who is like the opposite and she is so loving and compassionate. And it's like we both help each other get better, you know, which is great because we're both pretty extremely different from each other. Um, so phlegmatics are introverted. They're very loyal. Like if you picture all the temperaments as an animal, like a cleric would be like a lion. A phlegmatic would be like a St. Bernard. Oh, like, they're okay. loving and compassionate and they tend to be a bit more lazy. They just aren't as go-getters as a cleric or a sanguine. Um, but they're, they're good. They're, they're good listeners. They're good people, people. <laughs> And so my friends that are that are phlegmatics, that are moms, like they are able to live in the moment and just be with their kids, do the craft thing, sit outside with them, playing with water, making messes. And most of those things I am not good at at all <laughs> because I want the efficiency. I don't want to make the mess. I don't want to make the clutter. Now, have I had to make conscious decisions to do those things with my kids? Yes. Do I do it as often as I should? Probably not. But but if you have six, how do you have time to do anything with anybody? <laughs> <laughs> well, right now, I mean, it's summer, summer break. Um, you know, we do things together a lot. We have to. But our older kids can kind of go play with neighbor kids sometimes. They can go play a game with dad while I do other things with the little kids. Um, it's fun to see the different relationships between the siblings because right now our oldest and youngest, 10 and 1, 
their relationship is beautiful and oldest is a girl youngest is a boy so there's some of that bringing out each other's masculinity femininity a little bit okay but also just the age difference and that she just she has especially having just two younger brothers it's beautiful how it brings out her femininity much more than her sisters did for her interesting i learned a lot of that brett and i both did in the marriage prep material a big section of it is talking about human sexuality not in terms of like the reproduction side of it, uh-huh. but just in terms of all of us have our sexual being. And everyone, like my femininity has been brought out by my dad, by my coaches that were men, by teachers, by my grandpa. Like it's not just your spouse that brings out your femininity. There's a different love with your spouse, but your your sexuality is brought out by all of those other other gender relationships. And so I've totally seen it with our kids because I had four girls first, but there is such a difference once I had these two boys. Mm. And I mean, they're only three and one, but I've seen this difference and this dynamic that I was missing out on only having the girls. How do they change the system? If there's four girls and then suddenly there's boys, then how does that change the system? What system? Of the family, of the femininity being expressed. Like, how does it make you extra feminine? Uh, for me, I have seen a lot of, oh gosh, I feel like I'm seeing chivalry Oh. and he's three. Oh, he's already behaving in a chivalrous way. Yes. And like so he's holding the door open for his sister type of thing. Yeah. Little things like that, that like, yes, I'm wanting to teach him those things, but some of it's coming just naturally. Naturally. But like I said, some of it we're trying to teach him and just being courteous, which we're teaching all of them. But you can see like the maternal part because I was learning about the feminine genius and there's kind of four major traits of that. And one of them is maternity, that all women have maternity as part of their femininity. Okay. And it doesn't matter if you're an actual physical mother or just a spiritual mother, not just, I shouldn't have said just, but, or a spiritual, you know, any form, like all women are called to be maternal in some capacity. Okay. It's just in their being. And I can see that in my girls. Once we had these boys, they brought it out even more. Like they were maternal to their sisters, but there was just something about these boys that changed it. I don't even know if I could explain it further. Well, I don't know. I'm just going to, I'm going to try this as a comparison. If I have a white wall, maybe the wall looks even more white if I put a black or red object up in front of it Mm -hmm. or like a bright blue just the contrast. Right. Maybe the contrast just really somehow on some level makes us just draw that out even further. Mm-hmm. That's just going to be my guess. I think you're right because I remember a retreat one time and someone explaining like the male brain and the female brain in a very simplified version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the idea that males can compartmentalize versus that. So like the visual they gave us was that male brains are like a waffle. Yeah. So that they can have compartments, but female brains are like spaghetti and everything is so intertwined. And that's how a man can like be deep in the financial spreadsheets and just focus and like not even hear someone saying, Hey, can you turn that down? Or, Hey, can you whatever? But females just have so much going on in their heads all the time. And it's not exactly multitasking, but it's just, there's just. More so information many, going back and forth. So many windows of the laptop open. <laughs> well, there's uh, there's two books, and I'm just going to highly recommend them. I can't remember the name of the author, who she is, but she is a PhD in neuroscience. Mm. And she wrote a book called The Female Brain. 
And I just thought it was absolutely fascinating. And then she wrote one called The Male Brain. And then I was reading this and I was thinking, this is highly insulting, you know? So, but then I reread it and I thought, damn, I have to admit this woman's right about so many different things. Mm-hmm. You know, because at first I was reading and I was thinking, you know, we're just, we're not that simple. And then the second go through, I was like, well, we actually kind of are. So therefore it's fine, it's fine. I've also read that uh, the human brain has this uh, thing called the corpus callosum between the two hemispheres. And it helps the two hemispheres communicate between each other. And I guess men's corpus callosum is like an old dirt road. So like the connection between, you know, the two hemispheres of the brain maybe moves just quite a little bit slowly. And with women, it's an 18-lane superhighway, <laughs> which probably creates that whole spaghetti effect. Yep, that so, sounds about right. Yeah, so, yeah, who knows? Who knows? But, and yeah, maybe it's just the contrast. That, that's my guess. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, that now that we've got boys. Well, also, too, maybe the girl who reluctantly was behaving maybe in a more masculine way suddenly doesn't feel like she has to anymore because there's a guy there, so he can start doing that. I don't know. So maybe everybody's more free to be themselves, possibly. Yeah. And I think, too, you know, because there's stereotypes, too, about what's masculine, what's feminine. Oh, sure. So there's some of that. But I think what it boils down to in a very simple form is, you know, men in general are drawn to strength, you know, and wanted to be protectors. And I've seen that. And then women are drawn to beauty. Yeah. And I've seen that. And because of those two dynamics of, like, you know, there's something about protection and women wanting to feel protected and men wanting to protect. Right. You know, there's something about um, that dynamic of a man wanting to put himself on the line and there's something more physical about men. You know, you see that with boys, like they're going to wrestle, you know. Right. Girls, you might have some girls that want to wrestle. Or but not as much. It's not the same. You it's, know? it's pretty, yeah, it's just nowhere near as much. Right. And then the fact that we're made in God's image and likeness to complement each other. Like, yeah. we were made to complement each other. So to see that, and it doesn't have to be the spousal relationship, is so cool. That just we're supposed to bring out these good things. And it's just awesome to see that. Like, yeah. to help bring out the best qualities of yourself because they're so different. Like you said, the contrast. Yeah. You know, it's so funny because when I went to graduate school, if anybody were to say that there were these differences between male and female, it would just cause some people to be so mad. And then I started reading all this evolutionary psychology and biology. And these people were not coming at any of this stuff from a religious point of view. They were coming at this from a scientific point of view. And from their point of view, well, for two million years, this is how human beings have been uh, conditioned to be. And that there are very, very deep reasons for these things. So I just thought, this is amazing. They're saying all kinds of things that I've seen people do, and I've seen other people observe, but you didn't dare say out loud in graduate school. Otherwise, they would have kicked you out. So I just recommend evolutionary psychology that people read up on it, and uh, you will certainly learn a lot about the human race. Things will become very clear. Well, especially because our society has a hard time with equal and the same right you know they get those two words confused yeah i mean we are equal we both get to vote we're both of infinite value and dignity and worth every human is every human is is irreplaceable and magnificent and wonderful and that's how we are equal and we are absolutely not the same i mean individuality is 
part of the system and it's so great it's so great that we're all individuals we're all different right and i've also heard let me just ask you this that uh if you never thought there was any difference between boys and girls just become a parent (laughs) absolutely agree (laughs) so what were the differences you had these four girls and then you had a boy what was what was the difference in behavior you just noticed right off the bat so not quite noticing it till probably six months old because okay. when they're babies and they just sleep and eat and you know yeah lay that's there. all they do yeah but I saw with both the boys you know we we don't have we have a lot of pink in our house so when these boys came in they they did see a lot of pink but at the same time not like we had a lot of blocks and towers and cars for some reason um, we have more now okay <laughs> but the boys were drawn to balls and trucks. And they were there for the girls, but the girls were not drawn to those. And so it was like toys just laid out on the floor or whatever. They had the option. And so equal opportunity toys. And they were drawn to different toys. They were drawn to balls and cars. Uh, Another note that I noticed was when we go out and play on the front yard on the driveway, both boys, any vehicle that drives by, they will stop what they were doing and stare at the car as it drive by or get really excited or say car and oh the girls would ignore that unless it was something very out of the ordinary got it so there's just, just two very fascinating small. yeah fascinating uh let's shift into some of the money aspects of things i guess uh the overarching question i've heard is this so i think i looked it up recently and in 2015 uh people were projecting that it cost two hundred and thirty three thousand dollars to raise one child and i I just think these numbers are just total garbage and so i I just would like your take on but because i don't know you see these families with six kids well then that should be 1.5 million but then you look at them and these families you know if they were making i don't know you know a hundred thousand dollars a year even over 20 years, that's $2 million. So I, I, just, I just don't think they add up, personally. I don't know. I, don't, I, I can't trust statistics or study. You know, like I read a great article the other day talking about, you know, you can look at one set of statistics and it's just not a full picture. You have to have more information. You have to have multiple sets of statistics that are complementary ideas to present those things. So that number is hard to... A quarter of a million to raise a kid. I mean, that is just hard to wrap your head around. But are they talking zero to 18? Are they including college? Are they not? I mean, there's so many factors. I think just zero to 18. Man. I feel like, too, more kids, you're going to share so much stuff that that number... I would guess that number would go down per kid because you would be sharing a lot of things. Economies of scale. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, Guys, we just passed the hand-me-downs to the next kid. Right. Which my, is... my parents said kids don't eat very much. So, I mean, food prices. I mean, food expenses would be low. Oh, gosh. That's they're... not the case in our house. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> our kids are huge, and they love to eat, and they always have. Our kids are bigger than most people's kids. Okay. Well, <laughs> both you and Brett are very tall. Yes, and we were very huge, chunky babies. So, I think our kids all came by it naturally. Um and our kids are bigger than most kids their age, so our story, I think, is a little different than other people's. But, I mean, we we are not expensive people, and we don't go overboard. 
and we're very conscious of that. We have a lot of discussions. I mean, the budget's been um, one of the things in our marriage that's been more difficult than other things, which, I mean, you hear about that a lot. You right, know? right, right. That's usually a case for troubles in marriage, and I thought, oh, that won't be us. But it has, it's been a struggle um, for the past few years. You know, the more, especially, you know, Brett is the breadwinner. I love his big heart because he's such, he has such a servant heart. He very much worries about being able to provide for our family because Mm. he is the breadwinner of the family. That's part of the reason I've always not minded at all having a job of some sort, you know, for my sanity, but also I like contributing, even though my percentage is, I'm not bringing that much, but it makes a difference. It does. It helps. It helps. But, um. Yeah, he, he worries about that, and he's he's worried about it. He's not much of a worrier either, but that's something with every subsequent kid. That's that's usually the main pull on him is the worry of what it looks like. And so we have lots of conversations about um, what we're spending money on, what we're not. We, um, we regret not budgeting from day one of our marriage. Okay. Very much. And... I don't believe in regrets really because I feel like you learn from it. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. So I feel like I can't regret it because it's helped us learn and grow so much. But yeah. boy, do we wish we would have been. Yeah. In my that. mind, that's a positive regret. Like mm-hmm. anytime you make a positive change, then, well, yeah, I might regret what I was doing before the change, but I'm glad that I regret it. Right, exactly. And that's where we are because we just were like, oh, darn, if we would have all the things, right? Um, but we we buckled down even more around kid three or four, I think. So we were very blessed because, you know, we had two full-time jobs for a couple of years, or at least I was mostly full-time. And so we had a lot of freedom. And with only two kids that were babies, they didn't have a lot of expenses yet. Yeah. So we felt a lot of freedom then. We did a lot more, like, say, eating out for one thing, you know, and that's very, very expensive. And once you have three or four kids, that you just notice it. And Did so, you start the budget basically because you had to? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We were being too extravagant. And when I say that, it's not like we were very extravagant, but it was making choices like that, like eating out on a fairly regular basis just adds up. And so I didn't feel like we were extravagant, but we were making these poor choices that needed to change and be more thoughtful and conscious of how we were using our money. Because when you feel really comfortable, it's very easy to just kind of spend money and be comfortable if you're not keeping as good track of it. For sure, for sure. Well, it's like a diet. Like nobody puts themselves on a diet until they feel like they have to. You know, I just, you meet these people who have a metabolism like a, you know, Chernobyl. So it's just like burning everything up all over the place. It's just absolutely fantastic. It's like an Australian wildfire. It's wonderful. Well, until you start to pack on pounds. And then you're like, hmm, you know, 18 Twinkies a day. It didn't do anything to me before, but now it is. So then, yeah, that's why we, we do these things. Budgets and meal plans and because we're forced to. Right, right. But yeah, like you said, it's been such a good thing. And it was necessary. The more kids we had, the more expenses we had. And we have sent our kids to Catholic school for several years now. So that was that was a huge discussion. It wasn't a debate or concern, but it was, if we want to do that, how? what does this look like? Yeah, exactly. more, more of like the how versus yep. like the should we. Exactly. Gotcha. Yes. Is there uh, just, uh, there's 10,000 different ways to budget. I mean, there's like the sheet of paper, there's the software, there's like the computer app. Um, is there a method that you would recommend to people? 
So we're Dave Ramsey fans. Okay. We never took the class, but we read a couple of his books. And so we've been following the baby steps. And we, I mean, I don't think we follow his everything 100% because we still have credit cards, but we pay them off every month. So I know he's kind of anti-credit card, I believe. He really hates credit card companies. Yes, yeah. And I mean, we, we pay them off every month so we feel like we're okay and there's yeah. benefits to anyway well dave himself will say he never wants people to substitute his judgment for theirs mm-hmm. it's still your life and your situation he's right. just a talk radio guy with a lot of wisdom right right so yeah so we follow his like eight baby steps um we're still working on those but we use his there's an app that we both have on our phones and that brett gets on the computer to reconcile every month and we track every single income outcome, all of it. Um, we discuss the budget. We don't have like a sit down meeting every month, although I know people that do and it's really fruitful or maybe even twice a month. Um, but we talk about it almost on a daily basis too. So it's kind of more ongoing and just open communication. And like I said, we've had some like ups and downs with it, but I mean, the big picture and goals is, you know, what kind of is the driving force. And so it's, been really good to be able to see it line by line and so it's been really good that's good that's good i kind of want to ask uh maybe a few lightning round questions in terms of kids and their activities and things that you want them to do or not do um let's start with their grades how important are grades Um, i mean the oldest one's 10 so they're in school and they get some grades they do uh we have not emphasized it much at all okay um, they didn't even really understand what they were until third grade okay. because, you know, it's more participa- participation and we want them to love learning. I mean, bottom line, we want them to love learning. Uh-huh. They've always loved school. We want to continue that. Um, but, you know, obviously they get old enough that they're getting grades. They need to understand what they are. And I still don't think they fully understand them or at least, you know, they get, they even get number grades, but... We want them to do their best. So we emphasize them that we expect their grades to reflect them doing their best work. And if their best work is a C, great. If we know you worked your hardest, cool. But it's this interesting dynamic between us and them trying to understand. Because with us sending them to school, it's hard to see and hard to know their best efforts. I think, you know, if at some point we homeschool, it'll be interesting to see so much more of their efforts and what that looks like. I mean, I realize they're young. Is the oldest one in third grade? Uh, she's going into fifth. Going into fifth grade because she's 10. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So I don't think I understood grades until maybe fourth grade. I'm not quite sure. So you probably have a good sense, though, of what they're already like. Like what subjects they like and how hard they work and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I'm sure between the both of you, you're just emphasizing love of school and love of hard work and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, nutrition, nutrition philosophy. So we like well-balanced. So they kids, I mean, they make their own lunches. So they know that they have like a wrapper sandwich. They have a dairy, they have a vegetable, they have a fruit. They might get a small treat. So... We, I'd say we're not like overly healthy, but we're not a junk food family. Gotcha. Okay. Um, how about the reading? We want them to love to read. Uh, we read to them. We've always read to them at night before they go to bed until they could obviously read on their own. 
Um, the older two read on their own for quite a while before they go to bed at night. So there seems to be a love of reading there. They love to go to, we go to the library a lot. It's free and love of reading. (laughs) Yeah. So that's big in our family. That's awesome. Well, my mom's a librarian and I love to read. So that's music to my ears. Mm -hmm. Uh, Screen time. We uh, prefer not to use it very often. Um, the kids actually read a lot on screens too because there's um, ebooks and library apps, things like that. So they do read in terms of like games, they don't do a lot of games. We have a couple educational apps we allow them to use. Um, they watch in the summers, we watch like one movie a week. Um, they don't watch a lot of TV. We love for them to go outside and play. They play with each other. We love board games. So like I said, we're trying to get them into as many games as we can. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've seen negative results from screen time, even within the context of one day. Interesting. You like know, what? Well, just in their behavior. Oh. I've seen, if I say no to screen time, you'll see a fit, which is understandable depending on their age, you know. But then I also see behavior lacking after they've done screen time. It's bizarre. Oh, okay. I've read about it. I've seen it. It isn't extreme by any means. I think yeah. if we used more screens, we'd see it more often. But you can see kind of irritability. You can see just causing trouble. Just it's bizarre. Shoot, yeah. I see that in myself. Mm-hmm. And I'm definitely over 40. So, well, for example, if there's an election coming up, I I just tell myself, hey, don't get on the internet until 8 p.m. And then sometimes I'll set a little alarm for myself and that will be, you know, okay, you can have 15 minutes of looking at at things. I guess I'm thinking specifically of social media sites, which in non-election years, my Facebook, for example, looks like People are getting engaged, and somebody's got a dog, and somebody else had a baby, and somebody else took a vacation. Then during the election year, then just uh, the bad, the bad behavior. This is where everybody tries to change everybody else's mind, usually by cussing at them in all caps. It's so true. Which, which that always changes my mind completely. Like whatever I believe, all you have to do is like yell at me in all caps and I will change my mind. Oh man, the things people do behind a screen and not in your face. Yeah. And so I find it just has an impact on me. I just, I don't know. I guess I'm just confirming my own theory that people don't really change much between two and 102. That people are basically the same person and they say, oh, those kids can't handle it. Oh, like the adults are doing so well. That's usually what I'm thinking. Right. And I mean, obviously the difference between that is, you know, your social media versus our kids are looking at, you know, educational materials. Yeah. So as they get older, to try and protect from from that outside influence is huge. And luckily, like they don't watch YouTube videos. I mean, if I show them something, fine. But like they're not allowed to get on YouTube on their own to just kind of browse anything. So we, we keep a really close eye so far. I, I can see it getting more difficult as they get older, but it also scares me more because of how much evil is out there with technology. Right. Um, so that worries me. But for now, it's just the fact that I guess they just have the lights and the flashing. And yeah. I've noticed it affect their imagination. Oh, how so? How so? Just they don't. It's done for them. You know, like they watch these videos. They don't. I don't think they experiment as much, you know? And so when there's several days in a row without screen time and I'm like, just go outside, you see their imagination flourish and they come up with things. Yeah, they do. You know, versus like if they're given this, even if it's a great educational tool, they're still providing all the content for them and they just have to take it in. Right. So I think that's 
the big thing of like I don't mind screens but real pretty limited right. limiting what they're looking at because again if they're learning to read and I'm and it's emphasizing the letters and and what they sound like then okay fine a little extra help but that's why we don't do a whole lot of games they don't watch videos because I don't they need that. They need to go outside and come up with something on their own. And, I think so. And they'll I think complain so. about it, but then they'll go do it and love it and not want to come inside. So. Yeah. Yeah, look, I, I think most people are in favor of screens in limited amounts. There's just a lot of things like that. You know, like chocolate's good, but you don't want to eat 50 bars a day. You know, just like a little chocolate is probably a good thing. You know, I've read quite a bit about creativity, and I just really love what you're saying because when people are bored... That's where creativity comes from. And really kind of the problem of the screen is is that we've abolished boredom for people. So nobody's ever bored. So if people want to be creative, they actually have to seek out a little bit boredom sometimes. I definitely agree. Our kids have... They say they're bored after two seconds. Right. Right. Which is right. And we, I am not one to jump to. Oh, let's use this as a pacifier and give them the screens because they're whining. Like that's when I will not give them the screen. You know that just drives me crazy. But it's amazing how they'll say they're bored after two seconds. Right. And but that's natural. And even the toddler says it, even though he doesn't know what it means. But he's heard his sister say it, so imitation. Bored. Oh yeah, he doesn't know what it means. But it, it is amazing what they can come up with when I, I can give you suggestions. You usually want to just argue and you don't like my suggestions. So just go figure something out. And some of them don't do that well. Other ones do. My introvert is okay with it most of the time because she needs her space. She needs her alone time. She'll go make something. She's pretty crafty. My other ones who just can't stand being alone, they just want to be around people. They're like, oh, I don't know what to do. You know, and we do quiet time every day. No matter how old you are, it's nap or quiet time every single day. And so when they throw these fits, it's like, this is nothing new. You've done this since you were a baby, but you'd think you'd plan ahead or know it's coming. But Right, no, right. No. No. We're not but, there yet. <laughs> but we're, we're kids. We're kids. We have to learn. It's mm-hmm. fine. So kind of looking ahead to high school and college, uh, how would you want to handle alcohol and drugs? So I don't know why this is, but I was petrified of alcohol I knew other kids drink it in high school um but I'm also a rule follower so especially at like 14 or 15 if I knew people that were I never saw it my parents did not drink hardly at all and especially in front of us so it wasn't even around um but I mean all I was really told I think from my parents was like you don't drink till you're 21 that's the law and since I'm such a rule follower that that sticks with me and then it's not really a problem but I also didn't hang out with people that drank, so I wasn't even tempted by it. So I think that was good, but then, like I said, I you hear all these horror stories, so then I was just scared of what it would do to me if mm. I did. Because it was like, I've never drank, so how do I know one drink won't make me pass out or do something stupid or drive or something that I couldn't handle? Right. And so I just didn't know. And so it makes me wonder, like, if my parents had drank casually one drink every once in a while... And seen that like they didn't go crazy, you know, because yeah. I really did not know what to expect yeah. from one drink. You would have think in college, because I didn't go to all those parties, I didn't see it that much. So I didn't know how much it took to get so crazy. So I think for our kids, like I want them to understand it. I think they've seen us drink here and there. They don't quite know what it is yet. 
But I think I want them to know what it is and why people enjoy it and then how it can be used inappropriately. Because we've had those conversations of like, they know of certain things that are good in moderation. Because I talk to them about that all the time since I struggle with it. You know, that like, they know that having treats is great, but we have, we can't just eat only treats because right, right, we right, get right. sick. And so, and they even know like, you can't just eat bananas, even though they're good for you. So they can be good things, but they still have to be in moderation. So we've already had those talks. So I hope that we can instill that with alcohol and drugs too. Well, depending on what it is, you know, like if it's okay, like having a drink. Yes, but we want you to wait till you're 21. We want you to wait and be safe and make good choices so that others are safe, you're safe, it's controlled, you know, and and you're made to take care of your body. You're made to try not to sin. So don't put yourself in a situation to make these poor choices and not be in control of yourself. Okay, so I'll, I'll run a scenario past you. So let's say that you had a 17-year-old now and uh, they went to a party and uh, they, uh, they called you up and it's one in the morning and they said, I know I was supposed to be home at 11, but it's one and I'm very drunk and uh, would you come and get me? Um, how do you handle the situation? <laughs> I haven't thought about this yet, but I mean, I hope that, they, that we can still be able to have conversations with them. I hope that they don't ever reach a point where they're too afraid to call us even if they've made bad choices. Like I hope that my choleric doesn't take over so much that I scare them that they are too afraid of angry mom. <laughs> right. You know, because I want them alive, I want them safe, and I will be disappointed and they'll have consequences, but I want them to know that mistakes happen, but like certain mistakes can turn deadly, you know? And so if they got behind the wheel, I'd much rather them call me, but I also don't want to... You know, I don't want to scare them into not doing that. Right. You don't want to scare them away from calling you. You do want them to call you. Um, There's different parenting models. I taught psychology for the first time this past semester, so I learned a bunch of things. And uh, what you just sort of described is considered to be the best parenting model. (laughs) So so you stumbled right into that in a beautiful way. I shouldn't say stumbled. Um, You waltzed your way into that very gracefully. Um, authoritative is the parent with rules and with standards who is always open to more conversation. Authoritarian is bad. That's the one that also has rules and standards, but always goes straight to yelling. Those kids will sneak it. Those kids will become the biggest rebels possible. And then when they get themselves in hot water, they absolutely will not call home because they know that mom is going to lose her mind, you know, and dad's going to blow a gasket. So they, they don't call home. But the authoritative, I guess they treat discipline like gravity is what they say. Like gravity is unemotional and it happens every time. So that's the good thing about, you know, you want to be, I guess, warm and strict is also another phrase. You know, there's like warm and permissive. That's not so good. There's cold and permissive. That's not so good. Um, and then there's cold and strict. That's not so good. I got a lot of work to do. <laughs> yeah, well, like, man, I, I, I say all these things and here I am a teacher and I'm just doing the absolute best that I can to, to model these things myself. And I have a lot of work to do. So I, I also remember reading one mom in an article. She said, nobody can be a perfect parent 24-7. And I thought, 
this person is brilliant because you go to the bookstore and there's all these books on parenting and on teaching and the shelves just groan under their weight of all these experts who are telling us what to do. And then you pick them up and read them and think, yes, this is brilliant. But then this one mob, just in that one sentence, nobody can be perfect 24 seven. Well, no one can be perfect anytime, but right, yes. right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Uh, what have we left out about parenting kids that you wish we could add? Oh gosh, I don't know. We covered a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we really did. Okay, uh, let me ask this then. If, um, let's see, I mean, what did Teaching I faith say? to kids, that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, say that again? Teaching the faith, passing on the faith. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, what are your hopes and dreams for each kid ultimately? Um, the bottom line is that I hope they love God and serve him and others. Truly. I mean, our job is to get each other to heaven and that goes for everybody. But yeah, I just hope that all of my faults <laughs> through all of that that with God's grace through all of our human faults that we can help guide them and continue to guide them to Jesus because I mean he's the ultimate answer to everything but in the day-to-day -day of life I mean that's what we're navigating right is what's our what's our best choice in every scenario and how can we make choices that will help us grow and get closer to God and help others beautifully said well, this has just been absolutely fantastic, Emily. I just have one last question for you, and it's this. So you're 100 years old. This is my favorite question. You're 100 years old, and Brett is holding your hand on the porch, and you're surrounded by all six of your children. Well, maybe it's 12 of your children at this point. Who really knows? And there's just lots of grandkids there. And then people say, Grandma, what was good and best about your life as a mom? What do you say? Man, that's a question. <laughs> um, so I have currently been saying as a mom that they are my path to heaven because we know following Jesus is not easy. We know we have our crosses and I just, I've seen it because I have felt so inadequate and so unprepared and, you know, meant for other things or, you know, but yet I'm on this path and God has placed me here and shown me such good of it, but it's been difficult. And most people will say parenting is difficult, um, but you know, it's how we respond, right? So everyone has their vocation that's going to get them to heaven and this is mine and I mean, I hope I do my kids justice. I hope I give them what they need to grow and thrive. I hope that, you know, I can see them each as individuals and, and see their differences. And I hope they love their childhood and I hope they grow up to love others. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> it's beautiful. Thank you, Emily. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Seemingly Ordinary. The biggest favor you could do for me would be for you to share this episode with all of your friends. Until next time.